Okay, so we're looking at the uh, the resurrection uh, this week as our uh, kind of final crowning clue uh, to the identity of Jesus. Um, I'm calling this the resurrection puzzle, putting the pieces uh, together. Uh, I've been reading recently a book by uh, Giza Vermes on the resurrection. Uh, he says the idea of the resurrection of the dead was a latecomer in Jewish thought. And it occupied only a small area of the broad religious canvas of late Second Temple Judaism. That's Judaism at the time of Christ. The New Testament completely altered the vista and changed the perspective. In it, the individual resurrection of one Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, predominates. That is in contrast to the Jewish idea that some had, had got at this time of a general resurrection of the dead at the end of history. Femmes goes on, it's set in time and space and integrated into history. The situation is profoundly perplexing and the historian must come to grips with this puzzle. Uh, to do that, I'd like to sort of work in two stages. And the first stage is to arrange uh, the significant puzzle pieces, as it were. Uh, and I'm going to... Um, arrange them according to two criteria um, that these puzzle pieces uh, these little uh, nuggets of historical data uh, will be well evidenced by standard historical criteria things like multiple attestation and so on and secondly that all the bits of data that I'm going to build the case on uh, would represent the consensus the, the wide majority of the experts in the area uh, that is not just uh, Christian believers in the field, but people of all worldviews across the field. And I don't know if any of these will uh, come as a surprise to any of you, but these are the four bits of data that I'm going to say meet those criteria. That Jesus died on a cross, that his body was buried in a tomb, that that tomb was later found to be empty, and that then various individuals and groups of people had experiences in which they sincerely believed a resurrected Jesus interacted with them. And you'll notice that I phrased that very carefully not to prejudice the case one way or another uh, in terms of the second stage that we need to move on to having assembled our puzzle pieces and defended these four facts of well, what is the best explanation of those bits of data. So let's just go through those briefly, through those criteria. The first one that Jesus really did die on a cross. Um, particularly, uh, one piece of uh, information that's particularly interesting here, I think, is um, John's eyewitness report in John's Gospel, uh, in chapter 19, verse 34, where he talks about blood and water coming out of the spear wound that is put into Christ's side. And various medical doctors have commented on this um, and said that although John, with the medical knowledge they had at the time, wouldn't have known this, this is uh, a significant observation because it's uh, proof of, of post-mortem evidence that Christ had died in as much as uh, it indicates that he would have died of heart failure uh, due to the shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium and basically it's the separation of the, um, the red blood cells from the serum of the blood uh, which could account for this observation of blood and water as John describes it coming out of the wound um, 
I'm not going to detain us too much over this because there is just an overwhelming consensus in this area, as Charles Foster says, uh, the conclusion of the mainstream literature, even that written by virulent opponents of Christianity, is that Jesus did indeed die on the cross. Our second fact is that Jesus' body was then buried in a tomb. Um, this is Gerd uh, Ludeman, uh, a liberal scholar, um, doesn't believe in the resurrection and so on. Uh, he says Jesus was obviously buried. Uh, there's the tradition of the burial in Paul's letters. Uh, it's a very old tradition and likely to be historical, says Ludeman. Uh, William Lane Craig notes that even the most sceptical scholars would acknowledge that Joseph, that's Joseph of, of Arimathea, um, was probably the genuine historical individual who buried Jesus. Since it's unlikely that the early Christian believers would invent an individual, give him a name of a, and a, a nearby town of origin, uh, place that fictional character on the, the historical council of the Sanhedrin, whose members would have been well known, of course, uh, and that it's just unlikely to be a fabrication, because if it were, it's a darn rubbish fabrication. Um, so again, people like John Robinson, a you know, fairly liberal scholar, says Jesus' burial is one of the earliest and best detect attested facts about Jesus. Our third piece of data is that the tomb was later found to be empty. Uh, Klaus Berger says that the reports about the empty tomb are related by all four Gospels and other writings of early Christianity in a form independent of one another. So we've got multiple independent witnesses to the emptiness of the tomb. Uh, criteria of embarrassment, that is the historical criteria that says if, if uh, a reported fact is embarrassing in some way to the reporter of that fact, then it's more likely than not to be true because people tend not to go about um, saying things that hurt their own case. Uh, well, unfortunately, from our uh, contemporary position, uh, the standing of testimony from women in first century Palestinian culture was very low. Um, and the fact that the, uh, the Gospels relate that the first witnesses to the emptiness of the tomb were women uh, is something that would pass this historical criteria of embarrassment. Uh, Vermez says... Uh, the evidence furnished by female witnesses had no standing in male-dominated Jewish society. If the empty tomb story had been manufactured by the primitive church to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, one would have expected a uniform and foolproof account attributed to patently reliable witnesses, i.e., you know, some men. So uh, Craig notes, the fact that it's women rather than men who are the chief witnesses to the empty tomb is actually best explained by the historical facticity of the narrative. And again, uh, there's a consensus of scholarship in this area. Craig A. Evans, New Testament scholar, says, the consensus of scholarship affirms the historicity of the empty tomb. It is today widely recognised that the empty tomb of Jesus is a simple historical fact. And fourthly, the resurrection appearances. And here I want to talk briefly about 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 3 to 9. It's a letter from uh, St. Paul. And in that letter, he quotes and uh, a, a sort of early uh, Christian creedal formulation. And I've kind of put in here, uh, the creed that he quotes is in the white writing. And the bits that he uh, kind of introduces it and he interpolates a bit of information into the middle of it and, and ends it, that's in the yellow writing. So this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, For what I received, I passed on to you. 
And the language there translated as, as received and passed on uh, is translating a traditional sort of formulaic language for the, uh, the passing on of rabbin- rabbinical teaching. What I receive, I pass on to you, is as first importance that, and he goes into the quote, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's the uh, ancient Aramaic way of putting Peter's name, and it's actually in the Aramaic there, rather than in the Greek Peter, uh, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, and he interpolates, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, i.e. died. Then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles. And then Paul adds, uh, and last of all, he appeared to me also, uh, that road to Damascus experience, as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, this, it's generally agreed, constitutes early eyewitness testimony. Um, Think of a sort of timeline like this. It's generally thought that Jesus died in either 30 or 33 AD. Um, 1 Corinthians was a letter written, uh, we can date it from other things, in about AD 54. That's not a very big historical time gap there. Well, remember, Paul is reiterating teach, teaching that he t- tells them in his letter that he'd passed on to them when he set up the church there, which we know from other writings was about AD 50. So he'd already had and shared this creed that he reiterates to them by AD 50, 33 to 50, even smaller gap. And most scholars think that Paul probably received this creedal uh, formulation in Jerusalem from Peter and James in about AD 35, uh, at which time, of course, they had already formulated this within the the early uh, Christian church in Jerusalem as a formulation of what they previously believed. Uh, So a very famous scholar called James D.G. Dunn says that this tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. And Pinchas uh, Lapid, a Jewish scholar, says that 1 Corinthians uh, 15 may be considered as a statement of eyewitnesses. Craig then goes on to talk about this creed, and he says, given its early date, as well as Paul's personal acquaintance with the people involved, the list of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, guarantees that such appearances, such experiences, let us say, occurred. Craig also notes that um, this uh, data is passing through the multiple attestation criteria. The appearance to Peter is independently attested by Paul and by Luke. The appearance to the Twelve by Paul, Luke and John. The appearance to the women disciples by Matthew and John. Uh, The appearances to the disciples in Galilee by Mark and John. So you have witnesses from a synoptic gospel and the non-synoptic John gospel and also from the independent writings of Peter overlapping there. So it's no surprise that there's a consensus here. Uh, Reginald Fuller says that this experience of seeing Jesus after his death is a fact upon which both believer and unbeliever may agree. Gazavimez uh, again says, no doubt the New Testament characters believed in the reality of their visions of Jesus. Uh, E.P. Sanders, a very noted scholar in this area, 
says that Jesus' followers and later Paul had resurrection experiences. It is, in my judgment, a fact. What the reality was that gave rise to the experiences, I don't know, he says. But he says that there were these experiences, that's a fact. And Anthony Flew, uh, who despite his uh, sort of move from uh, being an atheist philosopher to being a philosopher who now believes that there is a God in around 2003-2004, doesn't uh, believe in any uh, revelation claim. He says, I believe they, that is the disciples, had some sort of experience. So you could summarize this uh, consensus of scholarship over these uh, four facts that pass these multiple historical criteria uh, with N.T. Wright, author of a massive book on this subject. Uh, He says, historical investigation brings us to the point where we must say that the tomb previously housing a thoroughly dead Jesus was empty and that his followers saw and met someone they were convinced was this same Jesus bodily alive, although in a new, transformed fashion. Having assembled the puzzle pieces, it then falls upon us, of course, to ask, what is the best explanation of these puzzle pieces? What is the picture that these bits of historical data are giving us of what happened? Well, with Wright, again, who uh, concludes... Uh, The historian may and must say that all the other explanations for why Christianity arose and took the shape it did are far less convincing as historical explanations than the one the early Christians themselves offer, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The sort of reasoning historians characteristically employ that's inference to the best explanation, uh, tested rigorously in terms of things like explanatory power of the hypothesis, thus generated, points strongly towards the bodily resurrection of Jesus. One way, I think, to get a a kind of handle on this is to think in terms of the famous Occam's razor. Um, Here is Occam, here is his razor. He's obviously been using his razor. Uh, which you could kind of summarize a bit like this. Always pick the simplest adequate explanation. That is, if you're looking at competing explanatory hypotheses for something, and two uh, explanations are competing to explain some data, and they're both equally adequate as explanations, but one of them is simpler than the other, then you choose the simpler adequate explanation. But nevertheless, it's the adequacy of explanation that's more important than simply having a simplest possible explanation. You want the simplest possible adequate explanation. Well, the resurrection of Jesus, the hypothesis Jesus really did rise from the dead, is clearly an adequate explanation of the four bits of data that we've got. If Jesus rose from the dead, you would expect there to be Uh, knowable that he died that he'd been put in a tomb that that tomb was empty because the body had disappeared and for people to be able to meet him afterwards so it's clearly an adequate explanation and actually I would argue there is no simpler adequate explanation on offer Um, philosopher Stephen T. Davis in a wonderful book of his called uh, Risen Indeed which looks at both sort of New Testament and philosophical aspects of this question He says, no one who denies that Jesus was raised from the dead or who offers reductive theories of the resurrection has yet been able to account adequately for these widely accepted facts. 
Well, you might think, well, it's okay for some Christian philosopher to, to, to espouse that view, but what about the, the non-believers? Isa uh, Vermes says, all in all, uh, having looked in the end of his book on the resurrection at six uh, different uh, hypotheses to explain the data uh, in a way that doesn't involve a resurrection, he says, all in all, none of the six suggested theories stands up to stringent scrutiny. Uh, Charles Hartshorn, uh, a philosopher who uh, is very explicit about deciding that he rejects the possibility of miracles happening, a topic to which we'll return briefly at the end. He comments, It is remarkable that a crucified man should have been the source of so vast a company of believers. I cannot explain this convincingly. And Anthony Flew says, I don't think it's possible to offer any satisfactory naturalistic account of what happened. He doesn't believe that a resurrection did happen, but he also doesn't believe that there's a, a satisfactory alternative explanation. Perhaps the, the leading kind of reductive explanation out there would center around the idea that the disciples had some sort of hallucinatory experiences that could account for their uh, apparent meeting of Jesus after his death. It's a theory that suffers from multiple problems, including it's got a very poor what's called explanatory scope. I mean, for example, Craig points out this hallucination hypothesis would say nothing to explain why the tomb would be empty. The fact that people have hallucinations of something doesn't account for a tomb being full one day and then empty the next, you know. Um, the hallucination hypothesis also actually says nothing to explain the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. They clearly believed that one person, as Verms was saying, had been resurrected within history. Um, for someone in the ancient world, just having a vision uh, of the deceased, that wouldn't be taken as evidence that that person was alive or had been resurrected against their expectations and theology. Rather, it would be taken as evidence that that person was dead and you were having some sort of ghostly apparition. And indeed, if you read some of the Gospel accounts, when Jesus first turns up, the disciples are scared witless because they think they're seeing a ghost. That's their first thought on having these things, but it's not their last. Then again, it's got poor explanatory power. Um, psychologists like Gary Collins here says hallucinations are individual occurrences. By their very nature, only one person can have a, a given hallucination at a time. Flu uh, agrees collective hallucinations really cannot happen. Um, but those who witnessed the resurrection, as evinced by the 1 Corinthians Creed, that early eyewitness testimony that talks about 500 people at one time having this experience, that doesn't seem a good uh, explanatory fit. And a, a very interesting remark from C.S. Lewis. He points out that any theory of hallucination breaks down on the fact that on three separate occasions this hallucination was not immediately recognized by the people supposedly having it as being Jesus. Think of the, the road to Emmaus experience where they spend a long time with this guy talking about Old Testament prophecy and things and they don't recognize him as Jesus until they get to their house and start sharing a meal and he kind of disappears on them and it's all a big shock and everything. If you're gonna ha your mind's going to sort of work up some sort of hallucination uh, to console you about the loss of your uh, master that you've been travelling around the country for three years and so on, you would think your brain would do a good enough job that you'd actually recognise the guy when you saw him in your hallucination. But on several occasions, that's not the case with Jesus. So, 
Uh, Bart Ehrman, you may have uh, heard of him as a New Testament uh, scholar uh, and uh, skeptic. And in a debate, which you can probably track down online fairly easily with uh, William Lane Craig on the resurrection, he says that the reason the resurrection makes sense to Bill, William Lane Craig, is because he's a believer in God. And so, of course, God can act in the world. Why not? Well, that presupposes a belief in God. Think through this a little. First of all, let's consider what Bart Ehrman has conceded there. What he's conceding is that belief in Jesus' resurrection does make sense if you already believe in God. Because if there's a God, he can work miracles. That means miracles are possible and you can't rule them out a priori. And that's where the data seems to point. So he's, he's conceding that much, which is interesting. But actually, I don't think that concession even goes far enough. Because agnostics about the existence of God and even non-dogmatic atheists, I reckon could also admit the possibility of God acting in the world were there to be a God and I think that even that admission makes it hard to rule out believing in miracles just uh, from the get go and to kind of say my mind is made up don't confuse me with the evidence as Gary Habermas says it's undeniable of course that everyone generally operates within their own concept of reality we tend to assess and make sense of data within a certain grid of preconceived ideas that is having said this however the factual data are still equally crucial Uh, we do need to be informed by the data we receive and sometimes this is precisely what happens the evidence on a subject can convince us against our indecisiveness agnosticism or even contrary to our former position sometimes looking at the data and thinking what's the best estimation can make us change our worldview. We don't always have to fit the data into our worldview, no matter what the explanatory cost. So as Morland and Craig says, surely, you know, given that there's a God who created the universe, conserves it in being, who's capable of acting freely, that would mean that miracles are evidently possible, at least only to the extent that one has good grounds for believing in atheism or we could say only therefore to the extent that you've got sufficiently strong reasons for thinking that there isn't a God could you be rationally justified in denying the possibility of miracles that is as much to say unless your atheism is of a particularly uh, strongly grounded kind of dogmatic form it could be the case that evidence for a miracle like the resurrection would make you change your worldview rather than your worldview constraining how you explain it.